So after, now, after these many days of the retreat, we've come to uh, the last two steps of the liberative dependent origination, transform, transcendent, transcendent dependent arising. And um, the 11th step is vimuti, usually translated as liberation. And the twelfth is the knowledge of liberation, the knowledge of what has been left behind when one person has become liberated. And it's interesting that it does, the steps don't end with liberation. You think being liberated should be enough. There's more, more work after liberation, more steps. So there's one more step, and that's the knowledge of liberation, knowledge of what's happened with liberation. And it's a very significant step. And why that's significant will hopefully come out in the course of this talk. So to step back a little bit and get a kind of overview of why, how these 12 steps of dependent origination kind of fit into the Buddhist scheme of practice, it might be useful to go so far back and uh, so for such an overview to point out that in many ways uh, Buddhism is not a religion except for the non-profit status we get. <laughs> so don't tell anyone. <laughs> uh, and it, it's, it's not a religion in the, sense, in the sense that many people think of religion. It's a many... You know, it's not, not it's kind of a stereotype of what religion is. It's not a religion in that it's not based on a belief system or a creed. And the very question, what do Buddhists believe, is not really a very useful question because it leads so quickly to the idea that, oh, there's a set creed, doctrine, that you're supposed to adopt if you're a Buddhist. And if you read a textbook uh, on introduction to Buddhism, they'll lay out... Buddhist beliefs. This is what Buddhists believe. But it's an, it's an odd list because it's things like the Four Noble Truths, the Eightfold Path, the Three Characteristics, and, the, uh, and karma and dependent origination. And the reason why this is odd is that these are not really beliefs, not meant to be beliefs. They're meant to be insights. They're meant to be something we can see for ourselves, not something we have to adopt because the religion tells us so. So if we, if we see, and, and you know, the word religion uh, is a Western word that uh, Asian countries Asian, uh, had to invent, many of them had to invent a word in their language to translate the English word religion into um, their language. So the Japanese, for example, in the, I don't know, 1870s or something, uh, when they had contact with the West, uh, invented a word because they didn't have a native word. Imagine a whole country that survived for thousands of years without the word religion. <laughs> and, um, and also in Pali, in the Buddhist languages, there's no obvious word that translated our word religion. But the uh, clearest word for what, how Buddhists, you know, there's a number of words that Buddhism uses that kind of to self-define itself. But the, most, the strongest one 
uh, and the one that is often referred to in India, is it's, it's a magga or marga, which means it's a path. So instead of a doctrine to believe in, Buddhism offers a path to walk, a path to engage in, a path of practice that leads to seeing in a particular way, seeing something. And, um, and you're, not, you're not expected to rely on a belief system. You're not expected to try to mold yourself into some idea of what Buddhist texts say is nature of reality. It's, I think it's a foreign idea in Buddhism. Though many people approach Buddhism that way because of, maybe because of Western kind of preconceived ideas of what religi- religious is. But rather, Buddhism keeps pointing back over and over again to the idea that it's you that need to walk a path. It's you that need to somehow be, somehow do some kind of transformation, do some kind of turning, turning around of the heart, of the mind, so that in, so you can see, or to see so that you can do some kind of turning. And the turning that is at the heart of it all is the, is the turning from suffering to happiness, from suffering and clinging to peace, from suffering to the release of suffering. So there's really only two primary things that you're supposed to believe in if you're a Buddhist. You have to believe in your suffering. And you have to believe it's possible to become free of it. And um, so... If you don't already believe that you're capable of suffering, then I guess it's hopeless. <laughs> or you don't need this. So, um, but what's nice about suffering <laughs> is that you can see it. You can experience it directly. Some of the more metaphysical beliefs that religions are often associated with, it's a little bit hard to kind of see as directly and as clearly as you can see suffering. And you can see clearly the freedom from it, the release of it. You can see when that suffering is not there. And again, you, the advantage of that is you can see something you can see directly for yourself. It doesn't, you don't have to rely on a book, a sacred book, is going to tell you what the truth is. You don't have to rely on a teacher or a belief system. You know it. You can see it for yourself. So we're talking about something very experiential, very here, that you're capable of seeing and doing and accomplishing yourself. And it's something only you can do. It's kind of, in Zen, they say it's kind of like um, peeing. You, you, you can't ask someone else to pee for you. You know, there's some certain things you have to do for yourself. And the path of practice is one of those things. <clears throat> the path to, if you're really going to be free from your suffering, it's really something, you know. It would be nice if I asked John, John, can you do it for me? (laughs) But it doesn't really work that way. So, um, 
so if in there there's a path and something very personal, it is something very personal, something we personalize. We have to find ourselves in this. Find how it's meaningful for ourselves. Here, here are the, the kind of teachings we give. And in a sense, kind of listen, listen carefully and say, how, how is this true for me? How, how is this useful for me? How can I take this in a way that's helpful for me? And that's actually a more interesting uh, response. It, do I agree or disagree with that? Is that true or not true? It's more interesting actually to say, well, I'm, you know, how is this helpful for me? Is, this, is there some way, some corner of my life, some way I can take this in? Can I use my intelligence and reflect and think? And say, oh, that's how this would be helpful. And here's where it's not helpful. So there's kind of very personal engagement in the process, entering into it for oneself. So the Buddha offered a path, then. It's something we have to do, something we walk. And uh, because the idea of being free of suffering, it's easy to say, let's be free of suffering. But the human, the ecology of the human heart and mind is somewhat complex. The ecology of clinging is quite complex. And so it takes a while. You have to have, get certain causes and conditions in place in order to really be able to see deeply to do the work. So because of that, Buddha talks about it's a gradual process. And if you use modern psychological terminology, perhaps ideas, just as uh, adults, just the way we understand now childhood through a developmental model of growth through childhood. So uh, the Buddha offered a developmental model of growth for a human being, way beyond childhood kind of a natural process of becoming mature. And, um, and so, there, in many ways, the Buddha pointed to different elements of a path, different angles, different parts of it, and with the understanding that the, the different parts are, support each other. But you need to have the requisite support or the, the requisite conditions for which other things to arise from. So, for example, uh, to become free of clinging, that's really tight-held clinging, it, you know, it's hard sometimes to let go of something we believe in so tightly. But then this process of uh, weakening the drive of clinging, the weakening the, 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 the desire for clinging, weakening our enchantment with the thing we cling to, that can be a sl- sometimes can be sudden, but sometimes it's a slow process. It weakens, it weakens, gets thinner, and then at some point it's easier to let go. But what what is supports the process of this disenchantment, this, this weakening, this fading away of our clinging? And it, it helps a lot if we can see clearly. Kind of the pivot point, the heart of it all, is this really seeing clearly. So seeing things as they are. Again, emphasis in Buddhism is on seeing, not believing. But what supports our ability to see clearly? It helps to have a stable mind, a steady mind. So concentration is a supporting condition to see clearly. But what supports having a steady mind, steady gaze? It helps to have a sense of well-being and some sense of tranquility. Because if you're agitated and upset, it's hard to see clearly. So it's kind of a simple thing. It can sound complicated if we go through the list in its formal way, but it's just a simple idea that if you want to see something clearly, you have to have some modicum of settleness, well-being, and you know, 
being a little bit relaxed, calm. But what supports that? I think it's one of the things that supports the ability to be at ease, be calm and have well-being, is to have trust. To have trust, have enough trust so that you don't have to react to everything that happens around you or in you. You have to be for and against it and protect yourself from it. There has to be some trust to allow yourself to be present in a non-reactive way. And then why would, why would you want to get around to finding that trust and acting in that trust, doing anything? Why not just go to the beach? Because you've learned that even though the beach is nice, it only provides relief. It doesn't provide release. You can distract yourself. You can comfort yourself from our deeper existential issues, our deeper kind of craving and clinging and our wounds, our issues. And some people are successful to hide and be at the equivalent of the beach until they die. And if you're lucky enough, maybe you can play that, go to that casino, see if you can manage the lottery of seeing if you can have a you know, good day at the beach until you die. But it's, it's not a very, the odds are not that good for that. And, um, and so, you know, sooner or later we realize that, that suffering, we have to take it seriously. And so suffering is the beginning of this process. So it's a path, and it's all these different elements. And so we talked about a number of things this retreat. And as you listen to these kinds of teachings, it can be helpful to consider how these are, things are already are true for you. Rather than assuming that we're talking about something lofty and distant, someday maybe you'll understand what they're talking about. Run the exercise in your mind to, to ask yourself, in what way do I already know this? Because a lot of what Buddhism teaches is actually very simple common sense in kind of archaic ancient Indian lists given, you know, up on a stage and kind of lofty environments. And, you know, it's all this charisma and mysticism around these these things. It seemed like it's really a big kind of mystical thing. But it's really, at the heart, really common sense stuff. So to ask, you know, ask yourself, now how do I already know this? So, for example, the 11th step, of one of the topics of today, is liberation. Every single one of you have had some experience of liberation. Now, if you have liberation with the big L, the Big Bang Theory of Enlightenment, maybe you haven't done that. But I think we should do away from the mysticism and the charisma and the big, you know, glamorous idea of what this enlightenment stuff is and come, back and come down, to, down to earth. And what's matter of fact about this? What's simple and obvious? All of you have been liberated from something that you clung to in your life. Something you were addicted to, something you held on to that caused you suffering. I'm pretty confident of that. My five-year-old son, when he was five, he had some amazing clingings. 
And maybe, maybe you don't remember when you were five. But I suspect some of you are similar. So you can't, can't imagine how important it was for my five-year-old son that when I put the maple syrup on the waffle, that no maple syrup would go in the, in the, in the kind of crack between the maple syrup quarters. You know, there's maple quarters. You know. This was, you know, and then, and then it'd be even worse if some of the maple syrup ended up on the plate. But the plate had to be on the table in a particular way. And the silverware had to be in a particular way next to the plate. This was really important. And the level of distress and suffering that him and his father went through around this issue. <laughs> but now he's seven. And he doesn't, couldn't care less where the plate is, or the silverware is, or maple syrup, you know, just, just give me the waffle. So he's liberated. <laughs> From a particular clinging. I had clingings that I, I had things I clung to and suffered for when I was a teenager. And I imagine, just like me, some of the things that really got you going when you were a teenager wouldn't affect you anymore now. Who cares? I mean, to go to school with a zit? <laughs> that was big news. Maybe I shouldn't go to school that day. And I could tell you with confidence that if I woke up this morning with a big zit on my cheek and I had to come and stand in front of you and teach, I couldn't care less. I'm liberated. <laughs> and then there's, you know, then you're in your 20s perhaps, and there's certain kind of things that are really important and concerns that are, you know, so life and death so important. And at some point as you get older, as apparently Charlotte is now old enough, certain things. <laughs> I missed, I missed this morning, but <laughs> it was big news. <laughs> Sharda's liberated <laughs> from half the human race. as you get older, there's other things you get liberated. You look, sometimes you look back and say, what was I thinking? You know, when I was younger. You know, what was I thinking back then, holding on to that? That was so important. Senses of self. Putting all our kind of sense of security and happiness and well-being in particular areas. This person's going to do it. This job's going to do it. This thing's going to do it. This whatever. And some of this, you know, we grow up slowly and get older and get wiser and some of it, perhaps, is as we get older, it's a certain age, somewhere around the age 50, I think. It varies, give or take 10 years, maybe. 
that on her, they start seeing the horizon. And it makes a difference to see the horizon. And you realize, you know, maybe I should start making my priorities now come into a different kind of focus when you realize only a certain amount of time left. And so then certain things that were so important, you realize, well, maybe they're not that important. And so we let go. There's a liberation that goes on. And something naturally happens as we get older. What uh, retreats are about, or Buddhism is about, is a premature aging. <laughs> we, don't, we, don't, we don't advertise that, but... <laughs> in the sense that we're learning to have the insight, the wisdom, to begin to let go sooner, earlier, not to hold on. And you've had, so I trust that you can go back over your life and look at something that you held on to and you no longer hold on to. And my hope is that you can appreciate, you've appreciated the lightness, the freedom, the openness, the clarity, the relief, the release, that that has brought you in that small thing, in that area. You can see how it's beneficial. You were holding on to a certain kind of identity and you realize you had to let go of it. I held on so tightly to the desire that people, everyone, everyone should like me. And I went through social gymnastics to try to make that happen. And luckily, I was at um, an environment at Tassahara in the Zen monastery kitchen, which is the most difficult place in the world, as far as I could tell, to ensure that everyone likes you, <laughs> especially if you're kind of the head of the kitchen. So I exhausted my, my capacity for that route or I just suffered so much, I realized I can't do this anymore. So I let go. Because the alternative was just too painful. And sometimes we only let go when we see the cost. When when we stop and really look clearly enough, we see, oh, this is too much, this is not worth it. The cost-benefit analysis is not in my favor to cling this way. But sometimes we're so distracted by our clinging that we don't see the cost of the clinging. And one of the great advantages of coming on retreat and slowing down, quieting down, is that we catch up to ourselves and we can really see what it's like. One of the common experiences on retreat, for some people, not everyone for sure, is um, to notice the cost of the judgmental mind. Judging and judging and judging, you know. And they realize, oh, this, this is too much. It's exhausting. <clears throat> and then beginning at least entertain the idea that maybe it's a good idea to stop doing this. <laughs> That's huge. So you all have some experience of it. And then how can you build on that experience? How can that, that experience maybe give you some confidence at the beginning of these steps? Confidence that it's possible perhaps to do it more thoroughly, more completely. It's worthwhile to kind of stretch yourself, challenge yourself, to go look further, look more deeply. Are there other areas of your life that you can release, let go of? 
how much are you willing to be challenged? Can you intuit how deep or how thorough some of the core clingings in your life are? And is it interesting to really address it? I, had a, I knew a man many years ago, a lovely man, who was a part of our group in Palo Alto. And he was, um, his worst fear was to um, die of cancer. And at some point he got cancer. He had spent his life being nervous anxious. So he got cancer. After a while, he got nervous, worried, because he was worried he wasn't going to die right. He got all these books on dying so that he'd be sure he could, he could die successfully mm-hmm. the right way. But at some point, it was really clear he was dying. And this remarkable thing happened a lifetime of nervousness disappeared. Kind of like the thing he was most afraid of was happening. So it didn't make any sense, didn't, didn't make any sense to be afraid of it anymore. And he, in his last period, he was very peaceful. It was really beautiful. I think he was happier those last days. And sometimes, you know, it has takes some real confrontation with life to have something touch us in these deep, deep places where you know, somehow we can we let go. And I would like to say that letting go is comes back to the idea of trust at the beginning, again, of this, these different steps. Trust is a profound act. Deeper and deeper levels of trust. To trust, it's okay. Just to be here, be open, be present. Without holding on to something. Defending against something. So how deep and thorough can we let go? Can we liberate ourselves? And the challenge that Buddhism offers us, more than a doctrine, it offers us a challenge. Offers us a, a challenge that it's possible to get down to the ro- very deepest roots of our clinging in our heart, in our mind, and uproot it, to become free from it. It's a phenomenal challenge. And luckily, we have examples of people who've done that. There are people who've gone deep inside and seen, the Buddha called it the arrow, deep inside in our hearts, who've seen that arrow and seen that it's possible to take it out. So it's possible. It's not easy at the deeper levels. So then, what does it take? Well, it takes putting together certain causes and conditions to support that. And there's a whole range of them that Buddhism offers that are supportive and helpful. There's ethics, there's Brahma-viharas, there's spiritual friendships. And these, these different qualities we're talking about in this retreat are some of these, these elements that are supportive for this process. The stronger the trust, the easier it is to let go. The stronger the well-being, the easier it is to let go. The steadier the mind, the easier it is to let go. It's not easy to let go, and it really helps if we've created some inner strength and stability in that process to do it really deep, letting go. So it's, I, I'm very fond of the idea that sometimes when the Buddha 
presented the path of practice. He presented it to people with analogies, similes, where from the simile you would understand the Buddha was treating the audience, us, as royalty. Isn't that nice? As a royalty. As opposed to some idea that now that we're in Buddhism, we're supposed to be self-effacing and small and not self and not kind of count and, you know. Royalty sits up and is present and counts as here. There's a dignity to a human being in the Buddha's teaching and kind of a hope and expectation that we can show up for our life here with upright dignity and presence and strength. And some of the development of practice is, involves the development of the strength and dignity and presence. I'm here, I'm present. I count, in a sense. Not to cling to those things, but so that inner strength allows for a shedding of what we cling to. And if we try to cling, if we try to let go of all the clinging, when we're still in some subtle way clinging to being no self, I don't count, you know, it it creates for a kind of instability. So it's one of the reasons why it's good to have a gradual path so that we can develop this inner stability and strength. So we talked about seeing things as they are. We talked about the process of becoming disenchanted, no longer in in the trance of things, no longer in the spell of things, that this magic spell, that this is what's going to do it for us. And then this process of fading away, this passion fading away of the passion or the clinging or the drivenness, the compulsion. And then when this fading away becomes enough, then it's possible the mind releases itself. There's this deep, deep release that can happen. And the process of that deep release is sometimes said to happen one of three ways by going through what's called one of three doors. And uh, these three doors are, I'll kind of cryptic when I say them, but then I'll explain them. There's a door of the signless, the door of the wishless, and the door of emptiness. And it's said that in order to go through the door of the signless, a person has a deep, penetrating insight into impermanence. To go through the door of wishless, a person has a deep, penetrating insight into suffering. To go through the door of emptiness, a person has a deep, penetrating insight into not-self. So, how does this work? The signless... It has to do a lot with the way in which we assign labels, interpretations, meaning, concepts on top of our experience. Some people are experts at this, where everything that happens to them, they're looking and trying to fit it into a category, into an idea, into preconceived ideas, into... um, um, some kind of value for themselves. This means, this says this about me. That says something else about me. Kind of assigning uh, this means, all kinds of things. My favorite this means story 
one of my favorite, is um, Sylvia Borstein called up the San Francisco Zen Center many years ago to go there and be a guest. <clears throat> and the guest manager was not there when she called. So. And uh, she was t- told that Robert would call her. So Robert called her, but she wasn't home. He left a message. So then Sylvia called, his, called back to Zen Center to talk to Robert. But Robert wasn't there then when she called. So then Sylvia said to the receptionist, I guess this means that I shouldn't come to Zen Center. And the receptionist said, no, I think it means that Robert's not here. <laughs> she was you know, ready to assign extra meaning on top of it. And we assign labels on people, on ourselves. Good, bad, worthy, not worthy, dangerous, not dangerous. Helpful, not helpful. All kinds of ideas we, we put on people. And the mind can be very quick in assigning, assigning. And sometimes the mind, the mind is on this constant role of scanning the horizon, scanning the world. For example, people, people, if people feel unsafe, the mind is always scanning to assign meaning, to interpret, to figure out what does it mean, each and everything that goes on. Everything gets labeled. One of the ways to be liberated, to be freed in a very deep place in the mind, is to allow the mind to stop assigning labels and meaning and interpretation on our experience, to leave it alone, to, to, to actually seize that activity. Charlie yesterday talked about cessation, the end of dispassion. To seize that activity of the mind's always looking out there and naming and experience. And that, it's said that that tendency for the mind to stop labeling, stop assigning meaning, occurs when we've really taken in, understood, seen deeply impermanence. How incredibly transitory our experience is in some very deep, kind of all-pervasive kind of way. So pervasive that as you scan and look around in all your experience, in all directions, the whole world, you see nothing that's stable. And you realize that you need some kind of stability in order to make sense to apply a label, an interpretation. And if it's, it's like you know, if you try to do water paintings on a river, on a roaring river, you know, it's not gonna work, right? If you have the, everything always in motion and moving, and you try to paint over it with our concepts, it doesn't work. And then if you can see that clearly enough, the mind will give it a rest, give it a break. Stop, rest, be still. But the ancient texts to talk about this say something very interesting. It says that these three doors are entered by people of different temperaments, or different kind of ways, or different strengths that they have. And the door of impermanence and the signless is entered by people whose strength and practice is resolve, strong resolve. 
And there's something kind of paradoxical, right, about seeing impermanence and seeing it with this great resolve. It's kind of like stable, stability, presence, the strength. But the resolve to have the mind, be willing to let the mind become still. This is what concentration partly is about, letting the mind become still. And the, the odd thing about stillness is that the more where the mind is agitated, caught up in the world of concepts and ideas, the more we tend to see things as being stable or permanent or something. But the stiller the mind comes, the more we see the world is actually constantly in flux. So the idea of resolve, so that if you're, that's a kind of strength, so with that strength, you see impermanence. The door of the signless can open up. The door of the wish list means the door of not having any desires. And some people are oriented towards life with everything is about wanting something or not wanting something. People who are trying to control everything are, are this type always trying to want, want something to be a certain way, controlling things, wanting them to fit a certain way. The desire or aversion is constantly the constant kind of flow of life. The mind is always operating that way. It's really amazing, it's humbling to see how subtle and constant the movement of wanting and not wanting can be. You can see it sometimes in deep, deep stillness and meditation. It's so nice, so, so peaceful. I think I want a little bit more peace. Can I lean into this more? Wanting, holding on to. So I want to take a little sidestep here. So the the Buddha talked about a path of practice, with all these wonderful qualities that hopefully get developed in the process. But some of the very qualities that are being developed can also become the hindrance, the barrier to further progress. And there's a wonderful list called the the distortions of insight, the corruptions of insight. It's a wonderful list because it's the things that people thought of, many people thought it was all about. So uh, the first in the list is, um, is, you know, maybe most people don't think necessarily this, but is the experience of luminosity, enlightenment, luminosity. But then other things like faith, strong mindfulness, strong resolve, strong equanimity, a strong res- resolve. Um, I forget all of the whole list. But you've been practicing along, developing your resolve, developing your faith, developing your equanimity, developing your mindfulness. Oh, knowledge is another one. You, you really strong sense of you really understand things really well. Finally, it all makes sense. All these things, wasn't that the point? And their hindrance is because as, as long as we take a state, an experience, as the point, we interrupt the flow of seeing. We interrupt the process of seeing in such a way that we can release ourselves from all experience. There's no experience which is the point. It's the release. There's nothing the hand is supposed to be holding. It's that the hand is supposed to let go. And so even these states that are useful, if there's attachment to it or if we assign meaning to them, what this means that I'm successful, 
or we have desire for them, they interfere. And it's said that really to understand the path of practice begins, don't take this too seriously, but really begins when we understand that the path is not found, not found in experiences, but it's found in the knowing that leads to release. So the second door of liberation, the door of the wishless, is when the mind stops desiring. And there's something about the mind releasing itself from all desire that can set the heart, the mind free. And it's said that the way to see that is to really have a very penetrating insight into suffering. The unfortunate thing about these is that apparently people can't choose which of these doors to go through. Some people are just given the suffering door. And so you see, really see the nature of suffering. And it makes some sense. If you really see how unsatisfactory everything is, it's the, the deep, unsatisfactory, deep disenchantment, you know, sooner or later the mind will enough of this. Let's go of desiring. Desiring is just this dead end. But then it's more interesting because the ancient texts say <clears throat> that it's the people who have really strong tranquility that go through the door of the wishless, who see, see suffering in this deep way. And this juxtaposition of deep tranquility, peace, that allow, and experiencing suffering in a deep way. So we're not the victims of that suffering. We have a certain maturity and openness and spaciousness to hold it all. And in that, that, peace, that tranquil approach of seeing it, the tranquility, then something can, can let go. And then the emptiness <clears throat> door has, has to do with a penetrating insight into not-self. And independent of belief systems around no-self, not-self, true-self, all these ideas of self, Remember, Buddhism is not about a belief, but rather about insight, seeing. And if we see, we can see, many people can see, that in their minds there's a tendency to identify, to self, to take things itself, to build up a sense of self, to defend a sense of self. And um, <clears throat> remember once I went to uh, Abhayagiri Monastery to visit the monks and uh, with a group of people. And we all thought about bringing some food as an offering to the monks. So my friends had all kinds of wonderful lunch foods and it was really great. And I thought, well, you know, we're going up there and my friends are bringing lots of food and for this lunch. And, but during the week when no one comes to visit them, they don't have any food. So I brought all kinds of dry goods that they could use during the week. I'd never been there before. So I brought it to the kitchen and just left it there without thinking about it. I was happy to give it to them and didn't need any credit or anything, just was glad, glad to give it. But they had a custom up there that the monks and the, everybody would be sitting around ready to eat, and they'd carry out the food that was prepared for that day and announce who had offered it. But what I realized very quickly that what that what meant, of all the people sitting there making offerings, my name was not going to be said because I didn't offer anything for that meal. I had offered this dry stuff where they could use later. 
and I could feel inside me this, this, this like I was jumping out of my skin, wanting to, you know, just announce to everyone. But, but you have to realize that I, I, I brought food too, you know. I, 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 you know, how I was going to be seen by people. Being preoccupied with how people see us is part of this attachment clinging to self. Attachment to roles is attachment to self. Attachment to things is attachment to self in Buddhism. And there's a whole range of things that we get attached to. And there's a beautiful... I, I told a story to some recently to teachers. I think it was Sharda who talked about... The, someone about the example... Maybe Mary Grace, about kids when they're two, you ask them, you know, who, who are you? And they say, you know, that's John and Sharda and different people, and they laugh. Well, I did that to this two-year-old girl. I said, who's that? She said, that's my daddy. Who's that? You know, that's Tamara. Who's that? And I pointed to me, who's this? Gil. So I pointed to her. And she said, I am. So maybe she hadn't understood me, so I asked again, who's that? Pointing to her. And she said again, I am. So I'm kind of slow. <laughs> so I asked her a third time, you know, who's that? And she, stu- she stood up really tall and dignified and royal. It was really something to see. And she looked right at me and she said, I am. <laughs> I'd seen my burning bush. <laughs> and, um, you know, who was I? You know, trying to make this person into a person, into identity, you know, add this concept on top that she had to be someone. There's purity. Leave her alone. Raising our kids... We try not to tell our kids like things like "good boy." We have boys, a so, good boy. You know, do something good, boy. That was you know, rather because that solidifies an identity. But rather, what we say is, um, uh, "You had with great excitement." We say, "Wow, you had a lot of fun doing that," as opposed to, "Wow, you did. You're you you know you're the next Einstein. Great. <laughs> well, you had a lot of fun to protect them from that kind of." quick development of identity that we form around ourselves. And it's so deeply ingrained. The way in which we adopt society's views of who we're supposed to be and life experiences. We hold on to this idea. So, to really have a deep insight into how the selfing works and how persistent and, you know, always making self into everything, it's quite humbling. And to see that, really see that actually, if we look at things in, in their particular, look at things actually as they are, not in the concept, not in the global picture of things, but if you actually look behind the concepts, behind the global kind of generalizations we make, at actually what's happening moment by moment, there is nothing in our experience that can qualify for self. And, to, and it's really something very interesting in deeper meditation to look around and realize, wow, I can't find anything here that qualifies to be, be called a self. And when you have a really deep insight into that, then you go through that door of what's called emptiness. The mind lets go 
of self. The mind becomes empty of looking for self, making self. A phenomenal trust that you don't have to be any self. The mind can free itself. So this deep insight into either suffer, into impermanence, into suffering, into not self, are the really the profound doors that support and help this process of becoming free. It said in one place that the Buddha said that if you have a clear insight into impermanence, you will become disenchanted with suffering. If you have a clear insight into suffering, you'll become disenchanted with suffering. If you have clear insight into into not-self, you'll become disenchanted with suffering. Can you imagine? Did you realize that you were enchanted with your suffering? People are enchanted with suffering. What does that mean? What does it mean to be disenchanted with it? to let go of the preoccupation with it, the desire, the assigning a meaning to it, the making of self in the middle of it. So that release is possible. And it's really in our best favor to do it because it's only suffering to cling. And as Sharda said last night, you know, it all falls away, we release it all, and we come back, it's all still here except for our clinging. But it's not quite that. It's a little bit more. Because if we let go, to the degree to which we've let go, maybe things come back, but then there's a kind of beginning to be a reevaluation of this world that we've come back to. And there's an, uh, some, hopefully a deeper trust, a deep understanding, deeper trust about the nature of suffering and clinging, and deeper confidence that it's okay to let go. And perhaps a deeper understanding that, you know, that some of the things that I'm still holding on to and clinging to maybe don't quite make the cut. Maybe that's not so useful anymore. And so part of the process of, of liberation is to, after liberation, to know you're liberated, to have some understanding and knowledge of what happened So that knowledge and understanding can we then help how we see the life we live. We don't go into enlightened retirement. But rather, we take that liberation we've had and it's very important to understand what happened in some way. So that's why the very last step is the knowledge of what we've been liberated from. And that does a variety of different things. One thing is that it's very easy to think that some degree of liberation is the full, you've done all the work that needs to be done. And you're asked in this tradition to actually review, look, and look at yourself very honestly. Say, what's left here? Am I still clinging to something? There's still more I could actually do so I don't kind of jump, the, you know, pre, pre, prejudge myself as being finished in the path. And if you do that evaluation, then you, can, then you can begin looking, oh, yeah, I need to address these issues as well. Also, um, by stepping back and looking at what happened, 
It's also to begin, begin understanding how it happened. And that's very important. And I'll use this analogy to explain it. I hope you're still with me. Are you still with me? <laughs> On this journey? Okay. So the analogy. If two people are lost in the wilderness, same wilderness, and they're lost for a long time, and one of them just happens to stumble out, Maybe it's dark, middle of the night, stumble out. I'm free, finally, out of the wilderness. That's good. The second one doesn't stumble out accidentally. The second one studies the terrain, the landmarks, and then some way, somehow or other, finds her way out but then looks back, you know, I know the way out now. And what that means is that if they ever get lost in the wilderness again, the first one doesn't have any any way of knowing how to get out again because they didn't learn anything. They just stumbled out by accident. The second one, who studied the terrain and landmarks, knows the way next time. Also, if you know the way out, if you studied it and understood really what happened, then you can be a guide for someone else. You can tell them what landmarks to look for. And that's what the Buddha did. He gave us landmarks. These different steps of transcendent dependent origination are landmarks to help us find our way. But it gets more interesting than that, I think. If the person who stumbled out just before stumbling out, happened to be by a little river, creek, and picked up a little beautiful, shiny, perfectly round, black pebble. So beautiful. Was holding that pebble. And then just happened to stumble out. It's the pebble. The pebble is what you need to get out. And there's a kind of magic thinking that comes into play. Oh, it's the pebble. And next time they'll go look for pebbles again. Or they'll always carry that pebble. There's a lot of magical thinking in religious circles, including Buddhism. One of the forms of magical thinking in Vipassana is uh, the thinking that if you just sit long enough, you'll get enlightened. Ajahn Sumedho said, if sitting long was the point, chickens would be enlightened. (laughs) And I've known people who have actually gotten bitter because they thought that if they just sat in their cushion long enough, they'd get rewarded. And when they weren't, that they felt really betrayed by their Buddhism. But I can tell you, it's not just about sitting. Sitting is kind of like the form that helps us to, to see to look, what's happening here? What's happening here? And in fact, there's a lot of mystery in life. It's beautiful, the mystery in life. The wilderness is a great mystery. It's beautiful to be inspired by the mystery of the mountains and the rivers. And and it can be awesome to be so 
the beauty of it and the harmony of it. It's, it's really a mystery. It's also a mystery when the bear comes and eats you. <laughs> it's, a, you know, it's a lot of mystery. The Buddha, Buddhism, the Buddhist practice, is the end of mystery. It's the, actually the end of mysticism and magic. Not because there isn't mystery in this universe, but because the path is not meant to stay mysterious. The path is meant to be something that we understand clearly. You're supposed to understand clearly that if you clench your fist long enough, that your fist is going to hurt. There's no mystery to that. And then if you release your hand, that your hand will be free of that suffering. So then finally, Liberation is followed by understanding, knowledge. And one of the key knowledges, not one of the, the key knowledge that can come from almost any kind of liberation, small or big, is not, you don't, you don't have to find this insight, this knowledge. But I encourage you to look for it because it's probably there. And that's, that is insight or knowledge of how the Four Noble Truths work. And the Four Noble Truths is the key insight for dependent origination, the key insight of the Buddha, the key insight of practice, the key ending of mystery. So we really see how this is how it works. And to see the application of this orientation, this perspective, and how it, we might not, I mean, there's a lot of things we don't understand but we can understand clinging and the release of it. So I'll end with this. The Four Noble Truths, Satcha, Arya, the Noble Truths, are usually, the word, Pali words are translated into English usually as the Noble Truths. The Noble Truth of Suffering, the Noble Truth of the Cause of Suffering, so forth. But the Pali, the words in Pali, the grammar in Pali, can be translated into English that way. The noble truths, the noble truth of suffering. But the grammar, the Pali grammar allows for a different uh, translation, different meaning as well. And in fact, the Theravadan tradition down through the centuries has preferred the meaning I'm about to give you. So the preferred Theravadan uh, meaning is not the four noble truths, but rather, it's the four truths of the noble ones. The, four, the people who have had some experience of release, of freedom, will now see the world through these perspective. They'll see suffering. When they, they'll see freedom, they'll see the clinging, and they'll see the cessation from it, and how to behave to support all that. Not because it's, uh, you're supposed to be kind of depressed, dour Buddhist looking at suffering, but when you look at this amazing, mysterious, wonderful, special world we live in, as we look out at it, if we can pick out, see clearly those four aspects of our experience, when it's occurring, then 
We don't have to muck it up. We don't have to add the clinging to the experience. And the noble ones, the dignified ones, is meant to become you. That you can become a noble, you can become a dignified person who has this really deep insight into these things which are considered very simple, basic Buddhist teachings. They're incredibly profound. It's the end of mystery and the beginning of freedom, of release, of happiness, I hope. There is a way, and you can walk that way. And if you can allow your mind to turn away from all the things you're thinking about and concerned about, all the desires and aversions you have, all the concerns with trying to be a self, all the concerns about how people relate to you, long enough to just be still, quiet, and just see this is how it is, this is what's happening. Just here. Quiet and still, steady, to be continuous, to do it continually through a whole day like tomorrow. Just look and be here. Trust. You don't have to do much. Be here, still. Just look and see. Look and see. See and look. This is how it is. It's in the knowing. It's not in experience. It's not in figuring things out. You don't have to resolve childhood issues. Just see it, see it, see it. Just see, trust the knowing. And when the knowing becomes strong enough, it'll support your ability to see that you don't have to cling. And perhaps you'll step through a door. It may be a small door, maybe a big door, but a door of the signless, door of the wishless, door of emptiness. And the other side of that door, you will find your dignity. You will find your strength. You'll find your peace and you'll find your happiness. Let's uh, start doing it. Now is as good a time as any. Thank you for listening. 
To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.